Indigenous Sri Lankan culture received multifaceted influences from foreign cultures, mainly due to international routes passing in the vicinity of the island. Their influences spread into hinterland through water and land routes, and were absorbed by societies, transforming Sri Lanka into a multifaceted, heterogeneous culture with rich, tangible, and intangible elements. Manawadu Samitha. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening uh, regularly, and if you're a new viewer, welcome as well. Uh, I think the last episode did pretty well. Uh, in fact, this month's been another good one. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased with the channel's growth, and um, uh, I've been getting our backlog back up on YouTube. Pretty, pretty standard, I think, uh... By the end of May, I should be updating uh, that weekly along uh, with the other feeds. Uh, so, again, thank you all for listening. Uh, wherever you do it, I really appreciate the support. So, um, I wish um, I had a little bit more hard evidence to talk about in the last episode and for this one as well. Um, but I'm sure that eventually the areas that we've been discussing will have a more detailed glimpse into what the people living in the regions we talked about last time and this time were like. Um, this episode may be a little bit shorter. Um, there was a Audacity update before I got a chance to start recording, so that delayed me a little, uh, and then now it sounds like a storm's coming on, uh, so I may have to cut this a little short, but I'm going to at least try to break 20 minutes um, but, uh, you know, next week we'll be back to a longer episode for sure. And I, I I'm going to try to get another bonus episode out. I'm, I've kind of, uh, let those lapse for a little bit, but I'm, you know, uh, we'll see what I can do. <laughs> um, so I know for one thing, I did have something I wanted to go over, uh, that I forgot completely. Uh, in the last episode, and I remembered as soon as I had downloaded the episode and, you know, mixed it and had it ready for publishing. Uh, I didn't mention the origin of the term, the con. Uh, I've been going through some etymological study stuff, and because uh, I find that interesting, and it's important to kind of understand uh, what people recognized things as, to kind of understand how we were developing in terms of thought. Um, so, the con comes into English from the uh, Kannada language uh, and that their word Dakana. Uh, now, Kannada is a Dravidian language. Uh, today, it is one of the three most spoken members of the family. Uh, it has around, I believe, 45 million uh, primary speakers, you know, people who grew up and learned the language natively. And there are somewhere between, I think, 15 and 22 million secondary speakers. Um, the other two more widely spoken Dravidian languages are uh, Tamil and Telugu. Uh, and all the Dravidian languages have a similar word for the region. Um, though this may have been adopted into earlier Dravidian dialects and tongues from the Sanskrit word Daksina. There is debate about this. Um, this word was used as an adjective meaning south. 
Uh, now, there were other words in Sanskrit that meant south, like Savya and Anuttara. So, like hunting, I imagine that they were context-sensitive. Uh, it seems that Doxina was meant to refer to the south of some place, or to the south of where uh, the Sanskrit speakers lived. And it came just to mean the south. I do wonder, though, if uh, because they had other words that mean south, if it might be possible that Doxina might have been an endonym that the people of the Takan might have had for their land and their peoples, and it was transmitted to Sanskrit, which then overwrote its old meaning. Um, or maybe people living in the north, they possibly spoke a Proto-Dravidian or extinct branch of Northern Dravidian, passed it on to the speakers of uh, the incoming uh, Sanskrit or the evolving Sanskrit language. Um, whatever the case, um, you know, thinking about this has led me into a rabbit hole about uh, which was the first culture to spread its kind of geographic terminology uh, to other people and imposed it on them and how it was done. Uh, it, it's been a time. I, I went on a deep rabbit hole dive. So I don't have an answer just yet, at least a definitive one. I have a couple of guesses, um, but I, it's something I'll probably report back once I have um, a better guess or maybe a firm answer. Uh, so please look forward to that. Um, for now, though, I should move on and talk about the remaining places of the uh, far south of South Asia before we turn back to the north. Now, I mentioned the Lakshadweep Islands briefly last episode. Uh, these islands rest between uh, like 200 kilometers and 440 kilometers, which is um, 120 to 170 miles. Uh, they're... Oh, that's how far they are away from the Indian mainland, depending on where you leave from and which island you're heading to. Um, and I, I, met, I definitely misstated the habitation of the island, at least that's provable. Uh, so far, there has been no evidence of permanent habitation until around 1500 BCE. Um, though I know that there are references to the islands from earlier sources, and this makes sense because... People from India are sailing to and from the region during the Bronze Age. Um, why they neglected trying to live there prior to that, I can't say. And I would be willing to bet that they didn't neglect it. And there may have been small numbers of people living on the island sometime in at least the centuries prior to the, you know, prior to what the current current evidence shows. Um, I do wonder if perhaps these islands might have been occupied like the Andamans, which are on the other side of the subcontinent, when the water level wasn't as high. Um, but after thinking about it, there probably wasn't enough lumber or wood suitable for making the kind of boats needed to travel there. Um, but this is a region that we will return to and talk about the peopling of these islands later. Uh, their name comes from the uh, 
Malayalam language, uh, which is the fourth most widely spoken Dravidian language, and it means the 100,000 islands. Um, this is a exaggeration. Uh, there are a number of small rocky islands that are you know, too small for people to live on between the primary islands, um, but nowhere near 100,000. But, uh, you know, just due to the way the rocks are and the way the waves break and the lagoon kind of in between them, it makes it appear as if there's a lot more than there are. Um, but there's only around 30 or so of these islands that are large enough to support uh, human habitation. Um, for now, though, let's talk about leaving the Deccan to go further south. Um, the peak of the eastern Ghats are more dispersed than the western Ghats, um, and they have more paths through them, and more rivers flow down uh, from the east to the Bay of Bengal, which help you know, create passages through them. Now, as you head south, you descend from the plateau and you reach kind of a, you know, smaller, rugged, hilly region. Uh, and then from there, there is a sizable plain uh, crossed by rivers to the sea. And uh, from there, if you head to the southeast, you would reach what is now the island of Sri Lanka. Now, at various points of time, Sri Lanka is connected to the tip of the subcontinent by a kind of a limestone shoal bridge. Now, at various points of time, this land route is completely above the sea level, and in others, it is submerged in water. Um, I couldn't get a firm date on how long this tended to last and what caused the fluctuations, but I I could not get a firm explanation with solid dates in English. But it seems that the last time it was possible uh, to walk back and forth from the mainland to the island um, was around 5000 BC. So, at least in this, this current context. Now... Again, I don't know if that is something that is consistent, but it's very possible that you know there was still regular foot traffic uh, and some small level of trade between the mainland and Sri Lanka at our time. Now, it does again become walkable again later, uh, but due to a massive kind of monsoon storm that happens sometime around the 1400s, parts of the bridge completely washed away. Um, we will talk about that much later, uh, though I should point out the bridge was never massive and there were always major problems transporting large numbers of goods to and from the island uh, via walking. Uh, the, the limestone uh, kind of walkway was not great for tr uh, transporting like large numbers of like carts and things like that. So... Most large-scale trade happens via um, sea travel. Um, and regular sea travel and expertise, um, you know, is is required. Um, but it, it also makes the island and the, you know, the, the easiest part to kind of travel 
from the southern tip of India to the island and makes those areas very rich. Um, and due to the kind of the geography of the island, um, you and due to how deep that limestone shoal is, you can't sail directly from certain parts of India to uh, kind of the best seaports in Sri Lanka. So you have to kind of sail around and circle in and then go out or continue around the, uh, the um, west. So uh, that is something that is going to play a factor in the region's development as well. Um, I should also talk about the name of the bridge. Um, in a lot of uh, European and uh, Muslim sources, it's referred to as Adam's Bridge. Um, this is what the Muslims referred to the bridge as due to a kind of a, um, a story that they have in relation to Adam uh, come, you know, being made on Earth. Uh, and of course, the Europeans, you know, especially the Portuguese, uh, they, you know, that's a that's a cultural reference that they understood, so they used it. Though um, most um, Hindu, Buddhist, and uh, some newer English sources refer to it as uh, the as Rama's Bridge. Um, that's the most you know common name for it. Uh, by uh, people living in South Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, we'll go into the story uh, behind that name and why it is called that. Um, it's a pretty interesting tale. It's pro um, probably one of the more popular stories about Rama, uh, at least when it comes to uh, his cosmology and the cosmology of like Indian history. Um, but that's the reason for two separate names. Um, so just keep that in mind. I'll, I'll probably keep referring to it as Rama's Bridge. Uh, though, you know, if I reference a specific work, um, I may refer to it as the um, as Adam's Bridge as well. But for now, just think of it as Rama's Bridge. Uh, now, sorry, let me go back through my notes. Just make sure I'm at the right point. Yes, so uh, humans have been living in Sri Lanka for at least 125,000 years. Uh, and this seems to have been uninterrupted up until our focus point. And even after our focus point, it's not really an interruption. Uh, there is clear evidence of continuity in the tool and material culture, as well as reasonable progression and evolution of those types of items. So there isn't any sort of massive change in the island's population or climate. Um, there is a material culture that is recognized and kind of uh, you know set aside as its own thing, and that's known as the uh, Balangoda culture. Uh, that's a reference to a like hill kind of in the central highlands of uh, Sri Lanka. Um, this culture. It's it's kind of it's one of those that's debated on the time frame, but I think it has um, lost its cohesion. Uh, probably about uh, I want to say it's around fourteen thousand years ago. Um, so what we're seeing uh, 
because of that kind of that breakup of that larger, more identifiable culture, um, at least at Balangoda, uh, you see kind of a number of groups kind of spread to different regions. They keep the same tool tradition, but they all start to develop uh, kind of newer, independent uh, lifestyles and, and life ways. Uh, and that includes things like proto uh, horticulture, which of course could lead to agriculture. There is some evidence of them trying to do their own domestication of sheep and goats, though I could not get firm dates for that. Um, there is some evidence that it may have been happening, you know, right at the 8,000 year mark, or I'm sorry, 8,000 BC mark. Um, but then there's also some evidence that it was happening a little bit later. Um, and this would be things like, uh, I think they have their own variety of uh, goat uh, or sheep, uh, and as well as, uh, I believe, the zebu cows are there as well. Though, there again, there is some debate about if this was a independent event or if this was something that was being introduced from uh, the land to the south, if this wasn't some kind of small-scale uh, introduction from trade with the mainland. I'm of the opinion that it is probably something that they're beginning to do themselves, um, just because there are enough local varieties to kind of, you know, to kind of support this. Um, and, you know, we see a lot of different cultures, especially ones that have been in areas for longer times, slowly begin to experiment as their, you know, their tools reach a certain, uh, certain level of sophistication. But, um, whatever the exact case, um, the people who are living there, um, you know, they are taking up areas that are still in use today. Uh, I think there is one from around around this time period. Um, they found some some skeletons and uh, charred timber, uh, kind of rough clay uh, burial pots. Um, not true ceramics, but kind of like uh, just burnt, you know, burnt earthenware type deals uh and you know this is something that again that you're seeing when more places further to the east um but that you know they're they have their own they definitely have their own kind of style even at this point they're they're different from uh the artifacts you're seeing towards uh the west and the north um but uh, some of those skeletons have even been found at um, what are now temples uh, for uh, Buddhists, uh, different Buddhist temples. Um, there's one, it's the uh, Warana Raja Mahavihara Temple. Uh, that's a very old Buddhist temple, and this is, you know, this is a sacred site, you know, going back to a point where, you know, the people living there are, are very different. Um they have their own version of dog that shows up. Um, though I think that is actually dated to a later period. There's no, there's no firm, you know, kind of record 
of um, dogs being on the island to a little bit after our time period. So I'll talk more about that when we return to the island um, in the next, you know, in the next season, I guess. But f- as for um, as for the people who are living there, uh, there is definitely some, uh, you know, indigenous, you know, ancient. Uh, Sri Lankan descendants that are still living on this island today. Uh, these are referred to as the Veda or Vedar, depending on if um, you speak Sinhala or Tamil. Um, they are also sometimes referred to as the Wananialito. Uh, I believe that's how that's pronounced. If I butchered it, I do apologize. Um, and these are, you know, there are several different, I guess, subgroups of these. Some make their homes on the coast, some in the mountains, and some just kind of in the, uh, just in the, I guess, the center of the island as well. So they're, they're kind of broken up, you know, by region. Um, they don't speak their, um, you know, I guess their original language most speaks Sinhala. Um, I think some of their dialects have completely died out. There might be one or two groups that still speak, um, you know, their original, or, you know, whatever their original tongue's um, proto-language was. Um, I, I was trying to find some more, you know, solid stuff on this, um, but I can't. I couldn't really get a solid answer. Um, I'll try to look into it a little bit more. The Most of the stuff I could find on it was Wikipedia, and I'm very hesitant about citing that as a source when I, when I can. Um, but I, I'll dive back into that when we return to this island, because these people are still, you know, they're still around, and they're still a major part of the life on you know, the island until, you know, they're kind of outgrown by, you know, agricultural groups or, you know, more uh, organized, centrally planned uh, groups um, that slowly appear on the island. Um, and it might not even be fair to, to kind of characterize the current people at our time frame as um, the Veda. The Veda, you know, they have a lot of unique practices, but they also have been heavily influenced by uh, some of these outside groups that move to the island. But I think it's safe to say that they are, you know, they do have enough of their own like genetic history and identity to kind of classify them as their own group of people. Uh, they have some... Um, some relationship to um, the Austronesian people, the people that inhabited Sahul and um, uh, Australia. Uh, they have more of that kind of uh, genetic makeup in their background than, say, like the Tamil people do. Um, so, you know, they kind of broke off, obviously, very early. Again, Homo sapiens have been living on Sri Lanka for about 135,000 years, give or take. I'm sorry, 125,000 years, give or take. Um, so they, um, 
they are, I guess, they're descendants of uh, people who broke off from that initial first wave out of Africa, the ones that kind of rushed across uh, Asia to get to um, Sahul and Australia. Um, and we'll talk about some of their religious traditions when we return. Um, the number of uh, Vedder people are very very low um i think they only make up about i don't even think they make up a percentage of the population there's i think there's less than ten thousand these days that are like full uh full-blooded veda um but yeah we'll, we'll we'll dive into that stuff later um uh veda is a dravidian word it stems from um uh i believe the tamil word uh, Vedan, which means hunter, uh, which is also very close to the Sanskrit word Vida, uh, Vidhaya, which also means hunter. Um, but again, Sanskrit has a lot of words for hunters, so uh, this is probably a loan word from that Dravidian origin, uh, rather than like a true Indo-European uh, descended word like Sanskrit. But that's something we'll dive into a little bit more later. Um, oh, I should also go into the, the etymology of Sri Lanka. Um, now, Sri Lanka is actually a fairly new term for the island, at least as a political entity. Um, it's had a lot of different names over the years. Uh, obviously, Ceylon was what it was known to prior to being uh, Sri Lanka. Um, and a lot of people have called it a lot of different things depending on your time period, uh, what part of the island you're referring to, how many different political entities occupied the island, so on and so forth. Uh, but Sri Lanka itself is just, um, it comes from the um, Sinhala word Lanka, which is, it's actually very closely related to um, uh the Lakshadweep uh, Islands, um, Lock. It, it, it just means island, basically. Um, it's just like a different dialect or a different language. Um, the Tamil word, which the Tamil are the second largest uh, ethnic group living on Sri Lanka, uh, Sinhalis being, or Sinhala being the first. Um, the Tamil refer to the island is. Um, Ilankai or Ilanka. So, uh, very, you know, very similar uh, name for it. But uh, again, you'll find it named different things in different sources, um, which has led to some, to some debate about, you know, if it's always, you know, always actually being referred to in sources. There are some places that say, well, this means Sri Lanka is like, no, this doesn't mean Sri Lanka. This means another place. And that this is Sri Lanka. Um, it's, it's something that we'll dive into at different times. Um, Sri Lanka, of course, um, much like, uh, other parts of South India has its own, um, kind of, uh, native crops that become valuable and make it, um, a, you know, a destination to want to get to or want to control uh, trade with. Uh, I think cinnamon 
comes from Sri Lanka. Uh, that's the big crop I know off the top of my head that is native to it. Um, but we'll go over that in our next, you know, in our domestication episodes. I've got to plan those out at some point as well. Um, there are other items that, you know, Sri Lanka is home to that made it kind of a, a, a place that attracted uh, people to it. Um, and we will eventually make it an extremely wealthy area. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what we have in the South, at least in terms of, um, major groups and sites, um, for, for now. Um, so I think for next time, um, yeah, we'll, we'll go back North. Um, we'll follow, um, the kind of the Eastern Ghats, kind of go back up to the North and reach uh, what is the, uh, I guess, the Ganges Plain. Uh, the Ganges River being, of course, the um, the eastern cousin to uh, the, the Indus Plain and uh, river systems there. Um, these are sites of a number of different um, Mesolithic locations, or I'm sorry, Neolithic locations, as well as Mesolithic. Uh, and then um, we'll probably do next episode, we'll talk about um, sites there. If there are any in Nepal and Bhutan, they're in that same kind of water um, system. Uh, so that next episode will probably take up all of those places. Uh, maybe it might be a two-parter. We'll see. And then, of course, we'll move into Southeast Asia. Uh, and then I guess we'll have to decide if we want to go up to China or if we want to cover uh, Australia and uh, the rest of um, um, like Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. So, uh, But that's for me to figure out. Uh, you guys just have to listen and enjoy. And speaking of, I hope you did. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback, please let me know. Uh, you can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can send me a direct message on Twitter, uh, which I'll include the link uh, to my Twitter feed uh, in the episode description. And you can also, of course, comment on any of my YouTube videos, um, and I will kind of respond uh, there. Uh, so feel free uh, to kind of do that at your leisure. Uh, I thank you all for listening again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a good week. Uh, have a good night. Goodbye.